The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me, and he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. My mother and father-in-law like to tell a story about my wife Carrie when she was young. So she was around two years old. She was sitting in her high chair and she was misbehaving, which I know is hard for you to, to believe that she ever did that. But she was misbehaving. I think she was throwing food off her plate. I think every two-year-old does that at some point or multiple points where it's it's more fun to throw it on the ground than to put it in their mouth. So she was doing that. At some point, my father-in-law reached over and sort of swatted the back of her hand. So as my in-laws like to tell it, Carrie stopped what she was doing. She looked at him. She glared at him. And she said in her bossiest voice, don't spank my hand. So as they tell it, my father-in-law was able to keep his composure enough to deal with it. My mother-in-law had to get up and go quickly out of the room because she was laughing so hard. You know, no one has to teach a two-year-old to defy authority. Like, they do it very naturally. We, We all struggle with authority. We think we would do a better job if we were in charge. Generally, I think we want greater authority for two reasons. One is that we want to crush those who oppose us. And then the second reason is we just simply think our life will be easier, more comfortable, better if we are in charge. So just this week, I was driving in Raleigh. I was driving around 440 when a couple of cars went flying by. I mean, I I would guess 25, 30 miles per hour over the speed limit, just sort of weaving in and out of cars. I wish I had more authority at that point because I would have loved to crush them. I would have loved to be able to have a blue light that I could turn on and I could pull them over and write tickets that would end their life for the next few years. Like, I just wish I had authority to crush those foolish people who were endangering so many. How many of us have ever been in a job where we got frustrated with our boss and thought, you know, when I'm in charge, I won't do it like that. When I'm in charge, I'll do it better. Like, I won't make the same mistakes. I won't be unfair. I'll do a better job. And let's be honest, most of the time our frustration is because of how we feel we're being treated. We want authority because we think it'll be easier or better for us. So here you are, here in Mark 2, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they are waiting for the coming of the Messianic King, and they expect him to have authority, right? He is coming to crush their enemies. In that time, it was the Roman Empire and anyone who would stand against them, crush them and affirm these religious leaders what they were doing. So they, they expected the Messiah to come. They expected him to have authority. And they expected him to use his authority just like they used their authority. And so 
how Jesus uses his authority becomes a major source of conflict between Jesus and these leaders in Mark chapter 2. So there are four different scenes in Mark 2, and in each scene we find Jesus' authority being questioned by the religious leaders. They simply cannot wrap their minds around how Jesus uses his authority. If he really is the Messiah, then he should use his authority to crush those who are oppressing them and affirm them in their leadership. Hey guys, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. But instead, Jesus uses his authority to serve and bless others. And this this doesn't square with their distorted view of the Messianic king. We looked at that last week, how they just had sort of this misshapen, one-sided view of the king. And because they failed to understand the Messiah and what he would be like in the Old Testament, they see Jesus' use of authority as an indictment against him instead of an encouragement to them. So they question Jesus' authority four different times in this passage. And in each case, okay, in each case, they miss this. They miss the wonder of a king who is kind and gracious to those who are weak and powerless. In their own desire to dominate others, they fail to see and appreciate the humility and gentleness of Jesus. Imagine a king who has ultimate authority, but he doesn't use that authority to gain more comfort for himself. He uses that authority to comfort those who are suffering. The religious leaders can't imagine that kind of king. And so they question Jesus' authority. Here's the first question they ask. Why do you offer forgiveness of sin? Why do you offer forgiveness of sin? The full question is found in verse 7. So look at chapter 2, verse 7. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this question comes as a response to an event that takes place as Jesus continues to minister in this region called Galilee. He's teaching people in a home. We don't know whose home it says. His home, it could be long to him or simply be the home he's staying at, possibly Peter's home. But people are gathered to hear him teach. There are so many people that the entrance to the home is blocked. Now, we're not surprised. Remember in chapter 1, Mark said there are so many people, the whole town was lined up at the door to see him. Well, that's the situation here. So four friends have brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing, but they see the crowd there, they see the entrance blocked, and they say, we, we can't get him to Jesus. One of them notices a set of stairs on the side of the house. He points at the stairs, and they carry their friend on a litter up the stairs to the roof of the house. The roof is made of sticks and reeds and dried mud. Now look at verse 4. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So various holes have been made in my home by various objects. Okay, a a fist once made a hole. Not mine. A baseball once made a hole. Someone's head once made a hole. In my home. Never once did I see those as acts of faith. I saw those as acts which tested my faith, but never as acts of faith. Yet here Jesus is, a hole is made in the roof of the house, and he sees this as an act of great faith that these four men love their friend enough 
that they would bring him to the only one who had the power to heal him. Now, brothers and sisters, it's impossible for us to miss the beauty of their intercession on behalf of someone who needs Jesus. Certainly, we find here an example for us to follow. What would be the modern equivalent of what these men did? I mean, what would it look like to sacrifice time, energy, effort, dignity to bring someone to Jesus? It takes faith to do what these men did. They they had to believe Jesus is really worth it and that he actually has the power to heal someone whose life is broken. They bring the friend to Jesus for physical healing, but that's not what Jesus does initially. He instead heals him of his sin. This is what leads the religious leaders to question Jesus' authority. And so Jesus asks them, which do you think is more difficult? Is it more difficult to heal someone or to forgive their sin? And then to show him that he has the authority to do both, after forgiving his sin, he then heals him. Look at verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So immediately upon Jesus' command, the paralyzed man got up. The words used are actually, was raised. So immediately when Jesus speaks, he was raised. His paralyzed limbs came back to life. Jesus is showing he has the power to not only bring a dead man's limbs to life, he has the power to bring a dead man's heart to life. He can heal physically and spiritually. So so imagine if you were in the home that day, you're listening to Jesus teach, you're crowded around by sweaty bodies, you start to hear a noise and things start to crumble from the roof and all of a sudden a hole opens up and you see this man being lowered on on some sort of makeshift litter or stretcher down in front of Jesus and you see him and you say, well, it's obvious what his problem is, right? He has withered legs. He can't walk. That's his problem, right? Wrong. His problem was not quite so obvious. His major problem was this. He was guilty before God. The same problem you and I all share. We are guilty sinners. The late Bible teacher R.C. Sproul told one time about a friend of his who was a successful psychiatrist who offered R.C. a position in his practice to which R.C. said that he had a degree in psychiatry His friend responded this way. He said, R.C., 95% of my clients do not need a psychiatrist. They need a priest because their lives are being destroyed by unresolved guilt. See, unresolved guilt before God is the single biggest problem we all face. But Jesus can resolve it. Jesus does something here that no mere man is able to do. He absolves a sinner of guilt. And the religious leaders, they understand what Jesus is doing, that he is claiming in this act to have divine power and authority. And this is what prompts their question, Jesus, why do you think you, a man, have authority to absolve a sinner of their guilt? And Jesus answers that question in two ways. First, he answers by healing his legs, 
and saying, see, I'm doing spiritually what I'm doing physically. I'm healing him. But then he also answers this way. He claims authority by using for himself the title, the Son of Man, verse 10. Now this phrase, Son of Man, is used most famously in the middle of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a book about God's sovereign authority over all governing authorities. So in the book of Daniel, you have all of these different national authorities that when they compete against God, they lose because God is sovereign over all of them. But in the middle of the book of Daniel, there is this vision Daniel has of the throne room of God, and it's a vision with all the details intended to show us the unrivaled power and authority and majesty of God. And here, right in the middle of this vision, this is what Daniel sees, Daniel 7. Verse 13, he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Stop for a second. So here's the phrase, the son of man. In this context, is simply one who looks like a human being is riding on the clouds. Would you see why he would say he, he looks like a human being, but he's riding on the clouds, a very unhuman being-like move. He approaches the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. This must be someone important. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So in answer to the religious leader's question, who are you to forgive someone's sin? Jesus answers this, I am the son of man who has been given all authority to judge the nations. And what shocks them is not that Jesus with all of his authority would judge someone, but that Jesus with all of his authority would forgive someone. Question number two. Why do you eat with sinners? Why do you eat with sinners? So what prompts this question is the choice Jesus makes of Levi as one of his followers. So look at verse 13 with me. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, if you think Americans dislike the IRS, that's nothing compared to the Jewish dislike of tax collectors. So so think about this. Their dislike stemmed from two things. Here's the first thing. The, The tax collectors worked for the Roman Empire. So I want you to imagine it this way. Imagine the United States was conquered by China. And China, after conquering us, invading our country, conquering us, setting up their government, they took our IRS agents and they said, you're going to go door to door, And you are going to collect taxes from each American citizen. And those taxes are going to fund our continued occupation and enslavement of you. How would you feel when you got that knock? How would you look at that IRS agent then? Then here's a second thing. The Roman government required a certain level of taxation, but they allowed their tax collectors to collect beyond that. Anything they collected beyond what they were required to just stayed with the tax collector. And so these tax collectors would have sort of a base level tax, and then they would require you to pay more, and they would keep that extra. 
So they're not simply traitors, they're cheats. And this is who Jesus calls to follow him. So Mark is helping us as we read through his gospel here to better understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Right? And so remember in chapter 1, he invites this group of uneducated fishermen and says, you're going to be my disciples, follow me. And it says they leave their nets, they leave their families, they follow him. Here in chapter 2, he invites a cheating, traitorous tax collector to follow him who leaves everything and follows him. And so he's wanting us to ask this question, well, who can follow Jesus? Who can be a disciple of Jesus? And so far the answer is this, anyone who will come. Not just the good, not just the upright, not just the well-off, the educated, the special, anyone at all who will come. Levi, also called Matthew, leaves the service of one King Herod to enter the service of another King Jesus. And then he does what is natural for anyone who has just discovered a life-changing secret. He calls all of his friends, who just happen to be other tax collectors and outcasts, and he throws the party with Jesus as the special guest. Verse 15, he says this. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. This meal with Levi's posse of outcasts is what prompts the religious leader's question. This prompts it, but what drives it? I mean, what, what is the motivation that drives this question? It's resentment. Because the question is not just, why does Jesus eat with sinners? The question's this, isn't it? Why does Jesus eat with sinners instead of eating with us? They put themselves in a group that's distinct from sinners. So they have divided the world into two groups. There are sinners and there is us. I want you to listen there how Jesus answers your question. Verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Imagine trying to schedule an appointment with your doctor And he started asking you some questions, and he's like, oh, you're sick. I can't see you. Like, that's not a good doctor, right? Doctors treat the sick. A doctor who's like, I only see healthy patients, not a good or noble doctor. And Jesus says, I didn't come to hang out with those who think they've got it all figured out, who think they're righteous. I came with those who desperately need me and know it. Now, here's the good news. If the religious leaders will simply acknowledge their own sin, then Jesus will eat with them. But they're blind to their own sin. These students of the Old Testament have missed the point of it. The Old Testament was written in large part to show us the sinfulness of humanity. Right? No one has kept God's law. No one has loved the Lord their God, their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one has obeyed all the commandments. They should have realized this. But they spent so much time comparing themselves to other people that they missed the reality of their true condition. I think these religious leaders are a lot like the guy who's being interviewed for a job and he's asked by the interviewer, what are your greatest weaknesses? And he answers, I care too much. I work too hard. I'm too devoted to my job. 
Like that's a person who lacks self-awareness. Right? And, and here they are, their pride, their lack of self-awareness. This blinds them to their true condition. That Jesus eats with sinners is great news if you'll simply admit you're a sinner. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly wrote this. He said, Though the crowds call him the friend of sinners as an indictment, the label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who know themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is a friend to sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. Like, friend, we are all sinners. That Jesus is willing to be your friend and eat with you should bring you unspeakable comfort. But it should also motivate you to eat with and befriend sinners. So one pastor, he warned his people about how easily we can adopt the Pharisees' error. Here's what he said. He said, we come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians, and even our dogs are Christian. The result is we pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. And this is the part that's... Cuts deep, listen to this. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. None of us are Pharisees philosophically. None of us would say this is what we do, but we may be practically. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want to challenge you this week to schedule a meal with a non-Christian. It's one thing you can do. Maybe you can't have the meal this week, but put it on your schedule. Our Lord, our Savior, ate with sinners. Shouldn't we, as his followers, eat with sinners? Question number three. Why don't your disciples fast? Why don't your disciples fast? Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Twice weekly fasting was a common religious practice in that time. So for two full full days each week, from sunup to sundown, they did not eat. Now this fasting was not secret. This was an open, widespread practice. In fact, in the Matthew's Gospel, he talks about how the Pharisees loved to be known for their fasting. So so the question is, why didn't Jesus' disciples do this? Why did they not fall in line with this common religious practice? Well, Jesus answers with three illustrations. The first illustration in verses 19 and 20 is a wedding. Imagine going to a wedding and then the reception afterwards and everyone sat there staring at the food very somberly and no one ate it. And eventually it was dismissed. Like that would be a weird wedding. And Jesus is like, the wedding has come. I'm the groom and I'm here. So instead of fasting, we're going to feast. The next two illustrations go together. They have to do with both combining old and new things. Look at verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment 
Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my coming has brought a very new age. This is the age that all the prophets spoke about through these centuries. Jesus introduced this age back in chapter 1. Remember when he said, the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. This is the dawning of a new age. But see, the, the religious leaders had this terrible misunderstanding about what the Messiah would come to do. Here's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the return of the good old days under King David. I mean, none of them had been alive. That was a thousand years earlier. But they were waiting for the good old days when they would be free from oppression and worshiping the temple, offering sacrifices, like living the dream, just like it was back when David was king. Like they, they wanted to return to something that was broken, but Jesus came to bring something that was new. Now, these illustrations would have been very familiar to them. They're not familiar to most of us. So we might say them like this. No one stores up the cruddy old oil from their past oil changes and puts it in their new Tesla. Or maybe no one puts old guitar strings on a brand new Gibson guitar. Right? When, when something better shows up, you get rid of the old. You don't make a better thing worse by adding something broken to it. So one author summed up Jesus' point. He said, what Jesus is doing can't be fitted into the existing ways of thinking and living. If people try to do that, they'll have the worst of both worlds. Jesus came to feast, not to fast. He came to, not to reform old practices, but to recreate a brand new world. When Jesus arrived, everything changed for the better. There was no going back. Here's the final question. Why don't you keep the Sabbath? Why don't you keep the Sabbath? Look at verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they, your disciples, Jesus, doing what is not lawful? Now this question is sandwiched between two Sabbath events. And it covers their reaction to both of them. So the first event is found in verse 23. The disciples, they're on the Sabbath, they're a little hungry, they're walking through a field, and they're sort of snapping off the grain, and they're popping into their mouths. This isn't stealing, this was allowed. They were simply doing this, having a little Sabbath day snack as they walked through a field. The other event is found in chapter 3 and verse 5, and that's a man with a shriveled hand has his hand healed and restored by Jesus. Nothing is wrong with either of these acts, according to the Pharisees, except they were done on the Sabbath. And these acts, in their minds, constituted work, and work was forbidden on the Sabbath because of the fourth commandment, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So their charge in their question, Jesus, why are you not keeping God's law about the Sabbath? And Jesus responds to their question with two answers. Here's the first answer. I created the Sabbath. That's a pretty good answer. I created the Sabbath. Look what he says in verse 28. So then the Son of Man, there it is, the same title, this one who has authority over all, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now we first learn about the Sabbath in Genesis 2. God creates the world in six days. On the seventh day he rests. It says this in Genesis 2 verse 2. 
On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So what Jesus is doing is very clear to the religious leaders. When he is calling himself the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am God. I am the creator. I am the one who created the Sabbath day after finishing creating the world. Here's the second answer. Not only did I create the Sabbath, you misunderstand the Sabbath. So the Pharisees had a tendency to treat everything like the American tax code. So here's what they would do. They would get a law from God and they would examine this law in great detail. Which, that's not a bad thing. But then what they would start to do is they would start to build up all of these rules and regulations around the law. And, and eventually it would get so complex that, that no one had any idea what they were supposed to do or not do. Right? Most Israelites in this time felt like us at tax time. Like, I think I'm probably missing something and it's possible I'll be thrown in jail and I won't even know why. Take the Sabbath, for instance. I mean, that's a really simple command, isn't it? God says, take one day a week, this final day, and rest. Keep it holy for me. Set it aside for me. Set it aside as a time where you're not, you're not laboring, you're trusting me to provide. And you're resting. You're, you're recovering from the hard week of work you had. You're being rejuvenated. You're rejoicing in my kindness and care for you. It's, it's really simple. But, but the, the religious leaders, they weren't content with that. They said, well, we've got to figure out then what constitutes work. Because we want to make sure we don't mess it up. So we've got to figure out what constitutes work. And so let's codify what it means to work. And so this is the type of thinking they did. And they started to build all of these other rules and regulations around simply this simple thing. So what, what constitutes work? One of the things they said is if you walk too far on the Sabbath, that's work. What about the person who finds walking... Maybe in a field or walking down by the, by the sea. What about the person who finds that restful? What about the person who says, you know, when I walk with a friend and, and we stroll through these beautiful areas that God has made, we find it to be a wonderful time of reflecting on God's grace and praying together to our God. What about them? Can they do that on the Sabbath? The thing they find restful and worshipful? No. No. Because it's work. This is what they did. This is how they completely inverted God's purpose of the Sabbath. Instead of being a day of rest and rejuvenation, it became a day when you could do nothing at all and you still felt like you were messing up. Like it was intended to be a blessing from God, not a burden. I mean, this is Jesus' point. Look at verse 27. He told them, The Sabbath was made for man. God gave man the Sabbath for their good. Not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath to be a blessing. They turned it into a burden. Jesus then gives one Old Testament example to prove his point. It comes from 1 Samuel 21. So King David is on the run. He's, He's got his men with him. They don't have food. They stop and they... They eat the bread that's reserved only for the priests. He refers to this here in verse 26. Normally that wouldn't be allowed, but David understood the intent of the law was to be a blessing, not a burden. And because he, was, he understood it correctly, 
He was able to act in faith, even though it would have violated the, the common understanding of what was acceptable. Now, I think this example is especially interesting because Jesus is making some very subtle parallels between him and David. Right? David had been anointed as king, but had not yet ascended the throne. David had gathered around him this somewhat ragtag group of followers. David was being persecuted by those in positions of power and authority in Israel. And David properly understood the law of God. And Jesus is placing himself in the very same spot. This law is intended to be a blessing, not a burden. Jesus understands what the religious leaders do not. I want you to see this. I think this is key to not simply understanding this passage, but really to understanding God's word. God is gracious and kind. God is gracious and kind, and his commands are intended to be blessings, not burdens. They are for the good of his people. So God gave his people a gift of Sabbath, which is rest, recovery. It's an opportunity to worship him and to anticipate that he will provide for us even though one-seventh of the week we don't labor. But some who claim to follow God, who claim to speak on his behalf, had turned it into a weapon, a burden, a joyless chore, a reason for comparison with others, fuel for arrogant self-righteousness. And Jesus sums up the difference in perspective in this question to the Pharisees. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful? Does it follow God's law? Okay, they, they basically accused him of violating God's law. Does it follow God's law to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Isn't he saying, do you, do you understand what God desires? So what does God desire from his people? Like anyone who knows even a little bit about God knows, well, it must be God's law to do good, not to do evil. The religious leaders, they, they won't answer the question. They won't answer the question. And this is when Jesus says in verse 5 that he's grieved at how hard their hearts are. Now this phrase, hardness of hearts, is used in the Old Testament in a number of places. And it's always used about those who, who pretty much blatantly violate the law of God. Those who just reject God's law, they're hard of heart. But notice here it's used for those who add to God's law. They have outright rejected it, at least in the form it's written, and said they've added to it. But yet, we see that hardness of heart can be displayed both in sort of an outright rejection of God's law and in adding to God's law in a way that makes us feel righteous, a way intended to earn God's favor through our effort. Because here's the problem. Both of those things miss his grace. They miss his grace. In the mother of all hypocritical acts, in verse 6, the religious leaders, they hold a meeting 
on the Sabbath day to kill Jesus. Jesus is just asked, what is God's will? Is it to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And here they are on the Sabbath conspiring to kill. And they're doing it with the Herodians, those who serve Herod, which if you remember, what was their problem with Levi? He is a, someone who serves Herod. So here they are on the Sabbath, meeting with those who serve Herod, making plans to kill Jesus. You see, the religious leader's problem ultimately was not that Jesus had authority, right? They, they wanted the Messiah. They expected the Messiah had authority. The problem with it was with how he used it because he used it differently than they would. He used it not to crush enemies and affirm them. He instead used it to love others. He used his authority to care for the hurting. He used his authority to heal the sick. He used his authority to forgive sinners and feast with them. I think if we're honest, we should understand that we are a lot like the Pharisees. Because a lot of the time, we have no issue with God's authority. In fact, everywhere where it doesn't impose on what we want to do, we think it's great. But how do we feel about God's authority when it contradicts what we want? Are we not like the Pharisees? I'm fine with God being in charge as long as he allows me to do the things I want. But when he wants me to do something I don't want to do, then I have an issue with it. See, there are moments when we're not submitting to God's authority. We're submitting to our own. So let's end with two questions. First, simple. Am I submitting to God's authority? Here's the thing. You're here, which means you're alive. You're not yet dead and fully sanctified. So the answer is no, you're not submitting to God's authority in every area. None of us are. So let's be honest and say, okay, God, what are those areas where I am pushing back or outright rebelling against your authority? All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. Are you obeying him? Second question, how am I using the authority God has given me? How am I using the authority God has given me? All of us, most of us at least, have some level of authority. Whether it's at home or work or school, there's some level of authority. There are some people who follow us. What does Jesus do? He blesses those under his authority. He doesn't use his authority as a means to take or to gain for himself. He uses his authority as a means to give, to serve, to bless others. What about you? Do people see Jesus in the way you lead them? in the way you bless them, in the way you use your power, authority, your rights to serve them. God places his people in positions of authority so they can image him there. So what do those you lead, what do those you lead see in you? Do they see the kindness and grace of Jesus? We pray with me. Father, Help us first to submit to your authority, to be honest and aware of the places where we are rebelling against what you've said, where we are seeking our own will, our own kingdom, our own name, instead of your will, your kingdom, your name. Help us to repent of those 
and submit our lives, all of our lives, to you. Maybe it's a relationship that we're not submitting to you. Maybe it's a marriage that's in torn and in tatters because both are holding on to their own rights and neither will humble themselves and serve, give up their rights in order to bless. Maybe it's a position at work where there's just a constant attitude of complaining instead of a recognition that you have placed them there to obey you, to be an example, to be a blessing. Lord, help us who are in positions of authority to not look at our authority as a way to gain for ourselves, but as a way to give to others, a way to bless, not to be a burden. Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your grace to both submit to you and to lead others well. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.